Welcome to today's Lots of Matzah Pizza Podcast. I am very lucky to have FSN sports broadcaster Kevin Gorg on the show today. And Kevin has led a very fascinating life and a very fun guy to be around, not just uh, on the air personality, but off the air as well. He's going to have some great stories about his uh, playing days, his broadcasting days, and and his love of everything from movies to horse racing and, of course, ice hockey. I hope you enjoy today's broadcast. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire Well, good morning, Mr. Gorg. How are you doing today? Tony, I'm doing great. Like everybody else, I'm, I'm at home, I'm quarantined. I got two little dogs with me here, Fenway and Brooks, so I hope they don't bark during the production. But, uh, you know, just really counting down the days so we can get back and get everybody healthy and get back to sports and do what we love. You know, it's been a weird time in the world and I understand why we're doing what we are doing. It's been, uh, it's been tough. And, and this weekend and not have the masters being the, uh, fantasy golf fan I am is, is tough, but we're going to get through it. And we're going to be okay. So you have three daughters, uh, one's in high school, two are out of high school. Um, where are they now? Where are the two that are out of high school and college? Are they back home stands? You guys hunkered down or, or where are you? Where are they? Um, my oldest, Katarina, is just wrapping up school at Central Florida, just outside Orlando. She's down there. She's got a job down there. She's uh, loving life in Florida. I think at some point she'll move back, but I don't think it'll be any time in the next couple of years. My middle daughter, Madeline, is just wrapping up a senior at Eau Claire in Wisconsin. And then you mentioned my youngest, Anna, because she's a sophomore at Lakeville North. She's actually staying with her sister in, uh, in Eau Claire. They're down there for the week. They're both doing their studies on their laptops and cooking together and getting ready for Easter. So um, it's fun that those two can be together right now. It's cool. I listened to, just for the record now, you've done two podcasts that I know of with Tom Chorsky and uh, the Bar Down Beauties. And we're going to try to stay away from a lot of the content there. So um, if you want, we'll put links on to, you want to hear more, you want to learn more about Kevin and some of his <laughs> biographical stuff. I'm going to put links on my podcast to those podcasts if you want to get a little more deep on on, on uh, Kevin there. Uh, but I promised today to deliver content that wasn't on any of those podcasts. And one of those is that you have two daughters uh, that were in comp cheer. I have a daughter that went through the whole process is graduating this year. What's your takeaway of these two daughters and all the work they put in at, at the comp cheer level, comp cheer sport? Yeah, when they both came to me at first and said they wanted to do it, I, I, I'm like, that's great. And, and I, I, you know, any, any activities at school, I'm all for the more, the better with these kids. And so I was like, this will be awesome for them. I didn't think that it would be near the work that it was. And I had no idea what the five and six hour practices, um, the dedication it took. And I think the girls loved it. They loved the structure of it. They loved to see the finished product. Lakeville North was super competitive when they were there. The school was bustling with students. So you had to earn your time out there to compete. And I was taken back. I mean, I remember how good we were in high school, how good we thought we were anyway, and how hard we worked at hockey. But it was a couple hours a day at the most. And these kids were literally 
five days a week practicing five and six hours at a time. I couldn't believe it. Well, the takeaway I always give my friends in the hockey world will kind of roll their eyes when I say I'm going to my daughter's comp cheer or I'm going to Florida for a comp cheer nationals was it's a 10-month sport. It's not sanctioned by the MSHSL where they can only do a certain amount of things. They can go as long as they want, whenever they want, as long if they have one of these crazy cheer coaches. It can get pretty intense. It almost felt like, the, and the gals that were coaching were fabulous, but they had all done it as you know, as an activity when they were in high school or college. And so I think they almost wanted to one-up their coaches. Right. And say, well, you know, we used to go for four hours. You guys are going for five. But they took so much pride in teaching the right way to do it and then putting together, you know, again, when you're going to be out there competing against the best of the best, whether it's here, you mentioned Florida for nationals, they didn't want to embarrass themselves or their school. And so it was, it was pretty cool to see um, how that work would pay off. And I only got to go to a handful every year of the right. actual competitions because of my schedule working weekends. But I remember going, I mean, how much fun it was and the building would come alive. It was packed. These gymnasiums were just packed and um, the music was pumping and the girls were just loving it. And so, you know, like I said, at the start of this, I mean, when you're a parent and your kid wants to be involved in something with school, from drama to comp cheer to any sport, uh, you're going to be proud and you're going to support it. Absolutely. All right, so let's walk through your athletic career. Uh, everyone knows you went to Burnsville High School, won a state championship at Burnsville High School. I'll get to a couple details there, but what other sports did you play when you were growing up besides hockey? I grew up playing baseball and, and golf, and uh, hockey was my always my number one for sure. And I always wanted to be a goalie from the time I started really playing seriously at age six or seven. But uh, baseball, I played catcher in second base, uh, played traveling, played some Legion ball, and then golf. I played some high school golf and some college golf. So those were always um, sports I enjoyed. But when it got right down to it, hockey was uh, by far my favorite. I uh, interviewed a good buddy of yours, Marco Siki, last week, and, and you, I don't know how much you listened to it, but he'd mentioned growing up in the same neighborhood as you. Um, and what I take away is, and I, and I was, I, I'm not sure if you caught it, but I lived in Burnsville till I was probably kinder, right before kindergarten. So uh, we were a Neil school family. I'll get to that in a second. But I look back at some of the football teams and the hockey teams, and I'm sure their golf teams and their baseball teams were really good too, is you know the enrollment was so high at Burnsville High School because there was no Egan High School then. I can only imagine what the, the neighborhood battles were like in Burnsville when you were 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah, I, I've tried to explain this to, to kids that are in high school or college now or even my daughters or some of their friends and my nephews and nieces. You know, we – we had like five channels on our TV. We didn't have video games. So really, five, gosh, you had, you had two more than me, you know, well, I'm PBS. And right. Not, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not like just had weather updates, but honestly, um, to entertain yourself, you had to go out and play and do something every single day. And luckily I lived in the neighborhood just down the road from the Osikis. Lance Warner was up the block. Oh. Um, Jim and Joe Sanders across the street, Johnny McDermott, Kitty corner. Joe Schlink down by the Osiki. So we had six or eight guys that love sports and that's all we loved. So the seasons kind of changed and we'd play football. We'd play tackle football. We'd play baseball. We'd play basketball. We'd play street hockey and every different, you know, neighborhood spot was best for each sport. And hockey was the Osiki's driveway. They had a long, very flat driveway. And that was the driveway for the hockey McDermott's lawn into John Graham's lawn was where we played football. John McDermott's backyard into my uh, corner lot was where we played baseball. 
my driveway is where we had the hoop for basketball. And we kind of rotated around and did our stuff. And we did it every day. And that's what we only knew. And we loved it. I, uh, we had, a we, where we grew up in Burnsville or my brothers, older brothers grew up in Burnsville. I was pretty young, but I, I always remember there was the, there the Besser family and the Branson family were on the same block as us. Any real, any remembrances of those families? Because my remembrance was they were tough as nails and my brothers would come home and like, man, this Branson or that Besser really got after us today on the ball field or the hockey, hockey rink. Yeah, the Bessers and Bransons, I remember vividly, and I knew you didn't mess with them. And a lot of them were older than me. So when you're a younger kid, you respected your elders, especially back in the mid-'80s. And, I, you know, Scotty Branson played on SB. our team in, in 85. And I remember um, I paid the price in the locker room one time because Scott was very proud of his older brothers. Yes. And he'd always be telling stories about how his brothers taped their sticks this way or did it that way. And I was kind of the smart ass on the team. And so one day I can't believe that I made a derogatory comment to Scotty about what he was saying about his brothers. And I was kind of leaning down time my skates. Well, Brandy got up and cold cocked me. I mean, he punched <laughs> me right in the head. And my teammates kind of had to kind of jump in and come to my defense. And, you know, it's part of the deal when you're playing high school hockey together and you spend that much time at the pasta feeds and on the bus. There's going to be some of that that goes on. And to this day, I love Scotty Brantz, great guy, goony goo hoo the whole bit. But he did. He, he punched me right in the head, and my teammates jumped him, and we moved on and, and hit the ice for practice. I'm sure Tom Wosicki heard about it later from Mark, but he never knew about it that day before practice because the locker room was the locker room. The coaches were somewhere else, and you had some some dust-ups here and there. But I, I remember that team and how much fun we had at each other's expense. And there were days when I came out, and I think Mark Wosicki referenced this, where my uh, the, I drove a terrible car. It was a Dodge Omni. Yeah. Some of my teammates had carried the Dodge Omni on top of the snow pile with a Zamboni, you know, no way in the parking lot. So Mark and Kurt Hammond and I had to dig that sucker out of the the Zamboni pile of snow, but that that's what you did on that team. We were a bunch of clowns. Yeah. Well, I I bet we could go round and round on that. After your high school career, um, you play a year in the USHL um, and then headed off to St. Thomas to play. uh, And you guys had a really good run of teams there in the late eighties. Yeah, we had a great run, and we had some really good players. And if you remember, at this stage in college hockey, we didn't have the Minnesota States and the St. Cloud States and Bemidji State and some of the options. So at schools like St. Thomas, you had a lot of kids that either started as D1 players or could have been D1 players but decided to play D3 hockey. So the hockey was terrific. And, you know, I played my high school hockey for Tom Osiki, and I'm real proud that I played for my freshman year, Terry Abram, who was a terrific coach, and then – my sophomore, junior, and senior season, I played for Terry Skrypek, the coach that was at Hill Murray when we beat them in the state championship game in 85. And along with Tom Osiki, Terry Skrypek is one of those legendary coaches that, you know, if you built a, a Mount Rushmore of high school hockey coaches and when he went seven or eight deep, they'd both be on there. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. That's one of my hockey topics. I want to just roll through your personal bio. You grew up the son of a golf pro. That's not a normal occupation. No, you know, my dad, Ken, was the, the pro for many, many years, 40-plus, at the Faribault Golf and Country Club. And so I basically had two hometowns because, you know, we lived in Burnsville, and my dad would hop on 35 South and make the 30-minute drive down to the course uh, day in, day out uh, for those 40 years. But, you know, I worked down there from age 12 on, so I would spend all my springs and summers working at the at the golf course for my dad. And so I kind of felt like Fairbairn was my second hometown. And then, yeah, it was cool to have 
my dad involved in sports, being a golf professional. Um, I played a ton of golf as a kid and uh, certainly had a passion for the game because of my dad. It's not something you wanted to do, though. Clearly, you didn't ever get into the golf business and you could have. You know, I think I got a little burnt out. I, I was around it so much as a kid. And, you know, and I, I mentioned earlier that hockey was my first love. And so when I started getting real serious about sports into high school and then through college, hockey kind of took center stage. I'd still play golf on the side, but I was nowhere near as good at golf as I was at hockey. And, you know, um, nowadays I, I watch more golf than I play. I still love the game. I mean, I watch Golf Channel. I drive people around me crazy with how much I have that's on right now. Um, Masters week, even they're, they're showing old highlights, but yeah, it's, it's a game that, that I, I think because I wasn't able to play it the highest level and be as good as I wanted to be, I spent more of my energy and my time with hockey. Well, that's a good segue into some hockey topics. I got a few that you're going to really like. The first is being goaltender. Um, you played goalie your whole life. Um, Talk about the equipment when you were playing goalie compared to what the equipment is today. Because equipment's a big deal. Even back then, it was a big deal. What 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 kind you had and what what who you looked like as far as the other goalies across in the NHL. Uh, walk through the equipment differences today versus yesterday. I think I've had this conversation with Devin Dubnik and Alex Daylock at least a dozen times, and I am I'm in awe grabbing their blocker, their glove, um, their leg pads. I'm in awe of how light that equipment is. And then when I see those guys, um, how protected they are now, how they don't, you know, growing up playing hockey in the seventies and eighties, I mean, literally, you know, my chest protector and arm pads were like a, a thick, you know, a thick sweatshirt. I, I had welts and bruises during the hockey season all over my arms and my chest every single day. I mean, that was just how the equipment was and the leg pads, you know, a lot of times they were leather and inside there was like deer hide. And I remember having to take my pads to like a shoe repair shop right. to have, have it restitched so that the deer hide wouldn't keep falling on to the ice in the crease and, and wreak havoc with my skate plates. And that, that's what you had. And as the game would go on, especially at a rink like Burnsville, we played in a really warm rink. Those pads would really soak up the moisture. And so by the third period, those pads were probably three, four, five pounds heavier than they were in the first period. They were heavy. And back then, you know, goalies weren't 6'6". Six, six. I was 5'9", 155 pounds, so you played an athletic game. I played a butterfly style where I was out on my angles. You were taught to go down and get right back up and, and move around that way. And you had to do it and navigate the crease with that heavier gear. And so I, I do marvel at the gear now, and I'm a little bit jealous. But um, being that I'm 5'9", I don't think I could play the block and slide the way Devin Dubnik does. So it probably worked out pretty good that I – up when I did. So I, I want to elaborate on how heavy the equipment, I, I obviously every kid, you know, would put the equipment on, especially in high school, we would go screw around at the, at the rink. We put our buddy's equipment on. And I remember how heavy it, how much heavier it seemed after 30, just after 30 minutes, how heavy, how the weight that you would put on your legs and the rest of your body. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the exact poundage was, but I do know that, that you felt it. And I do know that you know, if it was six, eight pounds at the start, it was probably 10 or 15 at the end with how everything just kind of stayed on you. The moisture just got soaked into your chest protector, your arm pads, your leg pads. It didn't have anywhere to go. The moisture from the ice got into your pads. It didn't repel it. It soaked it up. And so it was like a sponge I, almost. And I, you know, the other thing is I remember how important it was to air it out. Like when you got home, you yes. had to lay your gear, every, you had to lay everything out. My sisters and my mom would go crazy because 
during hockey season, the basement would just smell awful. It smelled like a locker room because I was always constantly trying to dry that equipment out before the next day of hockey. And I remember if you didn't dry it out, I always drove to school and then it'd be in your trunk and it'd be frozen stiff by the time you got to the rink. So you had to dry it out to, so to not have to deal with that yeah, when you got was, to the rink for 215 practice you know, yeah. every afternoon. The technology has come a long ways. All it right. So let, let's go back. Uh, let's go back in time here and talk about your favorite goalie as a kid. No brainer for me. Um, my very first NHL game I attended was in the early 70s, maybe the mid-70s. The North Stars were playing the California Golden, Golden Seals. Yeah. They locked in on a guy named Gilles Malash, who a couple of years oh. later, through the merger with the Cleveland Barons, would become a Minnesota North Star. And as the years evolved, I become obsessed with the Minnesota North Stars. Now, I went to St. John the Baptist grade school in Savage. It's a parochial school. And my eighth grade teacher there was uh, Mrs. Trenary. And okay. Maureen Trenary, who now works for Our Lady of Grace in Edina, she's still involved as a principal, knew how much I love the North Stars. Every book report, every presentation, every art project came back to the North Stars. Well, she had gone to a charitable event where she donated a bunch of money to get a Jill's Melosh um, copycat jersey signed by the goalie. It never showed up. So months later, she went down to the Met Center went to the North Star's office and complained and said, listen, I didn't do this for the actual item, but I donated a bunch of money to heart disease, and I'm supposed to have this Malash jersey autograph, and it's never come. Well, the North Stars felt horrible. There was a miscommunication. Bottom line is they got her tickets and said, you come down after the game. We'll give you passes. No you can way. Move and he'll take the jersey off his back, and he'll sign it for you. So she did. She went down there, and as promised, after the game, Malash comes out, and he's about to sign it. He said, what is your name? And she stopped and said, actually, will you sign it to Kevin? So school gets done my eighth grade year. And my mom worked in the office and she was good friends with Mrs. Trenary. My mom, that morning, the last day of school, said, stay after school. Mrs. Trenary wants to say goodbye to you in the office before I drive you home. Went down to the office and she comes in and she's got tears in her eyes. And she hands me this Malas jersey. Well, you know, here we are now. And what was I, 12 or 13 years old? So 40 years ago, and I still have the jersey, still hanging in my closet, and uh, it's maybe one of the most special gifts I ever received. Oh man, you got—we haven't even started on the good stories. That wasn't even—that wasn't even a prompt. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, what's who is your? I was going to give you my favorite goalie, but guess what? It was yeah. it was Jules Malash. So we can freaking skip past that part, right? Wow. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he's not going to pick Jill Malash. I mean, there's so many goalies from our day. I was going to, I thought you were going to say Grant Fuhr because he was small, right? And he was, he was awesome. He was, I love Grant Fuhr, but Malash was my guy. I'm like, all right, we can skip past that one. We agree on Jill's Malash. I mean, he was unbelievable. He, he just could take over a game. I didn't know that he played for the Seals. I knew he was, came part of the merger from, from Cleveland, but I didn't realize that he was in California. Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay. Favorite goalie today. There's a lot of good choices here. Uh, for me, it's Marc-Andre Fleury. He still plays with that uh, that energy that I love, the way he's able to athletically move around the net, the fact that he's been able to win multiple cups, and his personality is such where he's such a lovable guy. He's great on the ice. I think he's better off the ice. He was beloved in Pittsburgh. He's beloved in Vegas now. 
Uh, I, I love Marc-Andre Fleury. Yeah, well, I'm not going to be – I think I pretty much agree with you on that one, too. Especially, I like him more off the ice than I do on the ice. I mean, obviously, he's a great goaltender on the ice, but the things that he does off the ice is, you know, 10 out of 10 type of material. He's phenomenal. And everybody that's around him loves him, and you talk to the guys that play with him. I'm buddies with Nate Schmidt, who plays for the Golden Knights, and – it's real. Like you talk to Nate about, about Mark andre Fleury and it, it's not an act. The guy legitimately has such a passion to be a part of something, to be out there playing every day. Um, and I really respect that. All right. Next hockey topic. This is, we're going to go Skrypek versus Osiki. Um, and, these are two great coaches. Again, on these earlier podcasts, you spoke of them briefly about having played for them one one year and then one, one a couple of years later. Uh, compare and contrast, you know, you talked about Mount Rushmore, which is a big statement about high school coaches because there's so many great ones here in Minnesota. People will know a little bit more about Osiki, I think, because of his state championships, but Skrypek, after he won a lot at Hill Murray, went on and won a lot at uh, St. Thomas. Yeah, and th- for me, the, the, I'll start with the similarities. Um, number one, how much they love the game of hockey. When they weren't coaching us, um, they were either helping to get our teams ready or going to watch other hockey. They were immersed in the sport. And the other thing I'll never forget is how competitive they were. If it was cribbage, if it was any game, even a fun little golf game on the weekend, how much they both hated to lose made them the coaches they were. And now individually, they were very different. Um, for, for Tom Osiki, I think there was more of a fear factor there. And I mentioned what a bunch of goofballs we were at Burnsville and the personalities we had in that locker room. We needed a guy like Tom Osiki. When I played for Terry Skrypek, it was at the college level. You know, we were yeah. 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. So you were borderline adults, right? Exactly. So I, I felt more of a friend relationship with Coach Skrypek. Not that he didn't have our respect. We were scared out of our minds of Tom Osiki in high school. With Coach Skrypek, it was more of the respect for how much he knew, how much he cared, and how much he wanted to, to do it for him and for your teammates. And he he made you do that. For Coach Osiki, you knew it was the right thing, and you didn't ever want to let him down. And I had a ton of respect for both. And I think it all it came back to just how much you felt that they cared. They cared about you as a hockey player. They wanted you to be at your very best. And then behind the scenes, they cared about you as a person. I mean, I had grown up a couple doors down from Tom Osiki. He was like a second dad to me when I was a young man. And for, for Coach Skrypek, he was the last real mentor you had before you kind of got let loose into the world. And he had that kind of fatherly approach to everything. And so um, I just felt blessed to have both of them in my lives. And they were both, you know, I think instrumental on me becoming a coach and later a broadcaster. Well, it's funny. Uh, talking to you just prior to the show, um, you had mentioned that Osiki was kind of who you wanted to be. He was yep. you. You became a school teacher in, in the early nineties after graduating. Before before you became your fame and fortune in broadcasting, you were a teacher and a hockey coach at many different levels. Yeah, just like Coach Osiki, I wanted to be a fire teacher in health, and then I wanted to coach hockey. That was my driving force. He was my uh, my mentor, my idol, the guy I looked up to, the guy that really stoked that interest. And when I got done um, at St. Thomas, I was lucky enough to land a teaching job at St. Peter's grade school in North St. Paul. I was a grad assistant for Coach Stripek. I coached his JV. I was the goalie coach on the varsity. And then 
Um, the, one of my biggest thrills was I got to be uh, the Burnsville High School hockey coach, just like Coach Osiki from 93 to 95. And so, yeah, he was the reason I went that direction, no question. Did you? What was it like back in the early 90s when you got to put basically succeed him, put on the, the Burnsville hockey jacket and, and lead the, the – well, it would be the Blaze back then, but uh, the Blaze at the time. What was that, what was that like? It was uh, a little intimidating. I'm not going to lie to you. When you think about the impact that Coach Osiki had uh, not only Burnsville, uh, but high school hockey. Uh, and to think as, as a young man still trying to figure things out at age 25 or 26, that I was going to be behind the bench and, and be responsible just like he was for those, those young men, that uh, it, it was a little overwhelming at times. And I think I was fine at the actual job of coaching and being on the ice and the day-to-day. Where I struggled was, was like a lot of young coaches dealing with the parents and dealing with some of the stuff behind the scenes. I wasn't very good. And, and I think I had a lot to learn. And because of it, I think that I took, uh, I took some L's along the way. I, I, I really, I, at that point, probably wasn't ready for it. And I think that everything happens for a reason. And I learned a ton in my time at Burnsville. But uh, I'll be the first to tell you that I could have been better. Uh, it's obviously, and when you and I talked about this before, it's, 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 you know, you're a regular guy. I mean, what you see is what you get, right? That's been some of the advice that you've given your whole life is just keep being yourself and people love who that is. Part of that is when you're coaching at Burnsville and some parents are being critical of how you coach, I'm sure you took on a lot of that yourself. It's hard not to take it personal and you know, you, you don't want to let people down. And, you know, I was new to the whole game. I mean, I had, I had, really my coaching experience before that was at the college level where parents aren't really a part of the equation. And so, um, I, yeah, it was one of those situations where I probably, um, got caught in the situation where I was trying to please too many people. And, right. and, uh, you know, I had a, I had a couple of really good years at Burnsville. In fact, that, that first year that I was at Burnsville, we had a, a team that went to the section final and like a lot of young coaches, I'll never forget it, Tony, you know, I had, devised the game plan, you know, Jefferson at that time was rolling. They, um, they had eight, 10, 12 guys that would go on to play not only division one college hockey, but NHL hockey. And Mike Crawley is one of the best high school hockey players that I've ever watched on the blue line for Jefferson. And so we had been beaten nine to two early in the year at Jefferson. They came back to Burnsville late in the year and we just devised a game plan to shadow Mike Crawley, which was kind of unheard of. To shadow defenseman. Yeah, how do you shadow a defenseman, right? Well, we put our best skater out there that could defend on, on him. And we tried to play a game plan where we took him out of the equation. We lost that game 4-3, but we learned a lot about, okay, we can do this. Well, now, page four to the section final, we're playing Satterdahl and Jefferson. And now we're playing an Olympic-sized sheet, which I didn't think about, didn't put enough time into. And I'm going to come up with the same game plan, not realizing at the time, should have realized, that Saturday is going to probably have a few wrinkles along the way. And he did. And we got beat 10 to one. Now we were never beating that team. That's not my point. They were always going to win that game, but I did not do a good job as a head coach of putting my team in a position to succeed. Coach Osiki was at that game. I got done. It was a doubleheader at Mariucci. We know the section final doubleheader now. Right. It's at night. 9,000 people there. And I'm, I mean, I'm humiliated and I bump into coach Osiki and I'll never forget this. I had my head down, just like a player, you know, just absolutely taking it all personally. And he looked up and he says, Gorgie, he goes, you guys could have played that game 100 times and 100 times you weren't going to beat them. He goes, it doesn't matter what the score is 10 years from now. They're the better team. You got your team to the section final. Take some pride in what you accomplished. So that was an uplifting moment. Now, 
I mentioned I was a grade school teacher at that time and I did playground duty. Right. So that following Monday, I'm on the playground. It's cold. It's windy. I'm out there doing playground duty. I'm still a little salty about the fact that my hockey team got embarrassed 10 to one in a section final. This little fourth grader comes up. We'll call him Jimmy. And he comes running up, Mr. G, Mr. G, Mr. G, do you know what time it is? And I'm like, you know what? I kind of just wait for the bell and I'll, I'll kind of line you guys up then. I don't have my watch on. This is before cell phones. So we didn't have cell phones. I said, uh, so I don't know what time it is, Jimmy. He goes, oh, I thought you did. I thought it was 10 to one. And he ran away. <laughs> I just got taken to task by a freaking nine-year-old. This is where I met in my life. It was humiliating. It was a hell of a joke. And all the kids laughed. And there I was. Oh, that is so I thought it was I thought you were going down it's time to go watch the state tournament and you were gonna be humiliated by having to watch Jefferson play in the state tournament after you got beat by him. No, that's even better. They went on to win and they were great and that was all well and good, but now the fourth grader put me in my place. Yeah, right when you said nineteen ninety two, I was like, Oh, you can't start nineteen ninety two without talking about Jefferson and some of those glory days. Yep. All right, so I want to get uh, to, you know, let's talk about some hockey players. So let's go back to, here's a, here's a tough one for you. Best player you ever played with? Man, that is a great question. Um, I would say if it's just high school hockey. It could be anything. It doesn't matter. You could have played bar league with them. It does just some guy who was really good. I go back to 85 because I, I got to, you know what? I, I truly believe um, that team in front of me was one of the best teams in the history of high school hockey. And so I would say a guy like Mike Luckcraft on the blue line who could fly up and down the ice, uh, who had great hands, who was a power play guy, a penalty kill guy, might be the most talented player I played with. Best big game player without a doubt in my eyes was Scott Bloom. He, he had a knack. Um, for scoring big goals at big times. And it wasn't by coincidence. That guy was unflappable as nervous as players got in big games. He was the opposite. Yeah. He had an ego on him that served him well in those big spots. So lucky might've been the most talented bloom was the best big game player, but I go back to that 85 team because we were loaded top to bottom. And that was a ton of fun to watch from my perspective, being this goaltender that just got kind of watch it night in night out play out in front of them we could probably do an entire episode just you and i about the late conference play that year 84 85 86 those three years of those that those conferences about as tough as it ever gets i mean you think about richfield right richfield yep. was an average team and they beat edina in the section final in 86 in one of those memorable games ever and they were an average team in that conference conference was loaded top to bottom now, the one thing i remember is um when I was a senior and you were playing conference games in November and December, I'll never forget it because we were playing at Minnetonka and we were both ranked. We were like one or two Minnetonka was like four or five in the state. And coach Osiki told us at practice the day before, he said, listen, your parents are going to want to be at this game, but if you want to get tickets, you have to send your parents to Minnetonka high school tomorrow over the lunch hour, or they will not get in. And so my parents, I was gonna say, your dad's school. a golf pro. So I bet he was, uh, bringing the freight, wasn't he? Well, he was, I mean, they weren't going to miss a game. I mean, especially in 85 with that team. No, they had, you had to drive to the high school the day of the game over the lunch hour to get tickets to get in because the fire marshal would shut things down. And I tell kids nowadays, and it's, it was just a different era where everybody went to high school hockey games 
And every one of our games that year in the conference, Edina, Minnetonka, Jefferson, Kennedy, Richfield, they were all sold out. If you didn't have a ticket by 5 o'clock, you weren't getting into the game at 7 o'clock. It was that simple. And I remember just how special that was to be a player, knowing every single night when you walked in, the band was there and the fire marshals at the front door because you couldn't jam another person in that building. That was pretty extraordinary when you think about it. As you can imagine, I was, I've been a hockeyaholic my whole life, and the greatest day of my life was when I got my driver's license in November of 1983. That meant my I didn't have to ask for a ride or ask my parents to take me to a high school hockey game or a gopher game or anything. I was free to go wherever I wanted. <laughs> and when Southwest wasn't playing... And there was, I would, I would open up the paper, you know, we didn't have a game that night. I would open up the paper and go, okay, what am I going to go watch? And I was, you know, growing up by, by Lake of the Isles, uptown area. I was 10, 15 minutes from Richfield, 10, 15 minutes from Edina. And I would go to one of those two rinks at that night to go watch one of these great teams like Burnsville or Minnetonka or Edina or Kennedy or Jefferson walk in and you would have a great game, as great a game as you could find, even as good as the games, God forbid for saying this, down at Williams Arena slash Mariucci they were just as competitive and just as heated as, as those other games and the talent level was unbelievable yeah we were spoiled I mean it, it, it's uh, I mean the golden era of high school hockey without a doubt hockey in general um, the talent was everywhere uh, I you know you had Marco Siki on that uh, this podcast last week I remember uh, when we were kids his dad taking us to Wakota Arena which is now Wooga Arena yeah we had to get there in time to watch the JV game just so we could watch Phil Housley later that night in the varsity game, it was legendary to go watch Phil Housley play for South St. Paul. He never left the ice. And you talk about some of the best players you've ever watched. Well, Phil Housley is the greatest high school hockey player I've ever seen play the game. And he went straight from high school to the pros. I mean, it's just incredible. That's, I mean, and to think about that, and he's an American and did it right. It, it was very, it was pretty common for a Canadian to do it, but for an American to do what Phil Housley did, he did in the early eighties is still an unbelievable feat. Yeah, it'll, I don't think it'll ever be topped, and I still, to this day, I'm lucky enough to come in contact with, with Housley, and I remind him just what a treat it was just to go watch him play. I, I'll never forget it. Mark and I would sit there, and we would we'd be watching a JV game between South St. Paul and St. Thomas Academy, not knowing anybody on the ice, but at 7 o'clock, we knew we were going to get to watch Bill Halsey come on the ice, and that was unbelievable. I'm sure at some point when you were at that game, you nudged Marco Siki and said, do you see that guy out there? You're going to coach in the World Juniors and win a gold medal with him someday. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> Talk about a small world. I yes. Mean, you have those moments. You know, I, I, I had a similar moment um, our senior year when we played in a section final. Sean Podine yes. scored two goals on me and put uh, John Marshall up 2 nothing in the first period at the Met Center on us. And now, you know, I see Sean Podine as this cup winner and this NHL veteran and, you know, that tie that takes you back to, you know, 1985 in that section final at the Met Center. George Palawa, one of the greatest players I ever played against. I got a chance to meet his mom and dad and get to know them and have dinner with them the week we did Hockey Day in Bemidji a couple of years ago for Fox Sports North. George Palawa was a man amongst boys. I mean, he was a yeah. player that was, you know, 6'7", 250 pounds. He'd run you right over. We played against them in that 85 state tournament. So, yeah, it's amazing how hockey kind of, you know, you look back at some of those moments and then you have the world junior with, with Hosiki and Housley and you have some of these moments where you bump into Stanley Cup winners and you remember that you played on the same ice years ago. It's it's Hockey is one of those weird things that brings everybody back to a, a different time 
where you guys were all kind of equals before they went on to do this. They went on to do that. Right. All right. So you kind of d- cheated there. You, you went ahead to my next question. Uh, I asked who I was going to ask you who the best player you ever played against. Was it Palava? Yeah, I would say George Palawa. I would. I think if you look back at, at some of the high school hockey players that were out there and Tommy Quinlan was at Hill Murray, he was terrific. I mentioned Sean Podine. Um, Edina was loaded. Dean oh. Williams and Marty Nanny, great players. I mean, phenomenal hockey players. But when I watched George Palawa play, when I played against him in that state tournament, he looked like an NHL player that had been thrown back into the high school game. And I told his parents this. I'm like, I'll, I'll never have a doubt in my mind that he was going to be a star at North Dakota and he was going to be a terrific NHL player. And it's tragic the way his life ended. Yeah. But I mean, it was one of those situations where you just knew that guy was going to be an unbelievable talent. And I feel fortunate to have not only competed against him in the state tournament, but we were lucky enough as a team to get by him and Bemidji in that first round game. All right. Uh, fast forward here. Um, now let's talk about some players today. Uh, we can, you know, if, if you feel uh, okay to talk about high school players, that's fine. Uh, high school players, college players, pro players. Is there a, a player you love to watch out of those, out of that cal- out of those, out of that group of, of levels? Well, recent memory, I would say Casey Middlestead was a guy that I, I was in awe of watching him play at Eden Prairie. I'm good friends with Lee Smith, um, their head coach. So I would, I would, when I get the time and have a chance to go watch a high school game, I would usually pick out a game where I either knew the coach or had a player that I wanted to see. And, and that would check both boxes because I got a ton of respect for Lee and the way he coaches and his teams are phenomenal. But Casey Middleson was a high school hockey player that I, I thought was must see uh, the hands, the speed, the hockey uh, sense that he possessed, the way he could change a hockey game with one shift, uh, just a remarkable talent. So he would be one of the start. He had a little bit of that. I mean, Casey, don't get me wrong. Casey, a little bit of that uh, Henry Boucher where, where when he touched the puck, the whole crowd would stand up and watch, right? It was. It was that type of situation because you knew that when he got the puck, he would be able to pick up speed and momentum and open things up and do things that most players couldn't do. And so you wanted to find out what was he going to do next. And he was that guy. And that's rare at the high school level. Our staff, we had a. For, I, I just released a book with. We took a f- an action photo of all 149 high school hockey teams in one season. We got every. We got to every team. You name it, uh, Lake of the Woods, Bemidji, all of them, right? And we picked our in the book. We picked our all player of the decade for every decade, which was a fun little assignment. Well, we picked Casey Middlestead for this most recent decade where Kyle Rao was in the same decade. People say, well, Kyle Rao won the state tournament in, in, in unbelievable fashion. I'm like, people didn't stand up when Kyle Rao picked up the puck. People stood up in awe when Casey Middlestead got his hands on the puck. I would completely agree with that. Rao was spectacular. He had a knack like Scott Bloom for scoring the big goal at the big time, but Middlestead was that guy that whether you were cheering for his team or the team you were that he was playing against, when he got the puck, it was breathtaking, and you'd, you'd step up and you'd lean to the end of your seat or stand up to find out what he was going to do next, no doubt. All right, I'd be remiss not to talk a little bit of pro. I mean, there's tons of them, and, and if you can go down the Sidney Crosby route if you want, but who are some of those guys at the pro level where you just kind of you stop and you, and you watch them, maybe not even when they have the puck on their stick? Well, I would start with Crosby just because – I have so much respect for what he does with and without the puck. And you mentioned without the puck, like Gretzky always said, it's not about knowing where it is. It's where it's going to be, where the puck is going. Crosby's that guy. He sees the game at a different level. He slows the game down like none other. Um, After him, I would be Connor McDavid. I I am just taken back 
by what Connor McDavid can do. Um, and he does it with speed. He's one of the rare players at the NHL level that is actually faster with the puck than he is without the puck. I don't know how he does that. And he does things on the rink that I can't even imagine a player can do. And for me, if, if I was going to go back to being a fan, not a broadcaster, and I had to pay to watch one player right now, it would be Connor McDavid. I think you're right. I think that's the guy I'd want to go watch. Because like you said, his speed with the puck is something that you rarely see. No, he's, he has a different gear. And with that different gear, it doesn't mess up his hands where he can still do the crazy things with the puck dangling-wise to get space. And in a league where, let's face it, the defensemen now are, I mean, you look, you look no further than the Wilds core they have. Tom <laughs> these teams have the best skaters on the blue line on the planet, and he's still able to make them look foolish. And then what he can do to a goalie, I mean, I just, I, I just marvel at the talent that Connor McDavid possesses. I think a lot of the average sports or hockey fans are cheated out of watching him on a regular basis because of where he plays. Number one, it's West Coast. Number two, it's up in Edmonton. And you got to really work hard to find it. If you got the NHL package, that's easy. If you don't, he's not a guy that you see a lot on NBCSN. Even the highlights, his games are usually still going when NBCSN is done with their game of the week or whatever. And even for our wild broadcast, we don't get a lot of Oiler highlights. So I don't, I don't even think the average fan has any idea of what he does on a nightly basis, how good he is. Well, and their team hasn't made the playoffs either. So, and they're on, and they're on pace to make the playoffs. So I think once he gets into the, into the playoffs, we're going to get a lot more primetime viewing of, of McDavid. No doubt. All right, let's talk a little bit about your uh, broadcasting. Uh, I don't want to get into how you got into broadcasting. That's already been discussed in these other two podcasts. But I'd like to talk about the actual day-to-day broadcasting. For example, one of your jobs at a wild game is to interview players between periods. This looks really easy, by the way, but it's not, right? So yeah, I, I thought it was easy until I started doing it. Right. And so, so who writes these questions, and how much time are you allotted? Do you know how many seconds you have to get this interview in and out, or do you just, or does the television truck kind of just play around with, with the? Is there some feel on that? Well, I'm in constant communication during the period with the producer and director, and they're phenomenal people that run the truck. And so I'll usually throw some ideas by them as to who we want to interview. And sometimes they like it. Sometimes they want to go in a different direction. And then it's up to me um, in the last few minutes of the period to kind of formulate a plan on how I want to interview the guy. You got to know who you're going to interview. And if you're around the team every day, you, you know, the personalities of the players, what's going to bring out the best in their personality. And then you want to, you want to give the fans something they, they didn't get already. So rather than, you know, did it feel good to score that goal? Take us through the play that allowed you to score the goal. Tell tell us how you, you were able to kind of get that done or what does it mean for your team that you guys were able to do this? And so, yeah, you, you just day by day, being at practice, being at the games, you try to formulate um, different ways to direct um, each interview to go. And it's heck of a lot easier when they're winning, especially the post-game stuff. But, you know, at the NHL level, it's a lot easier than the college or the high school level. You know, I look at the high school tournaments and, Tori Holt's a good friend of mine that does some of those high school interviews. So some of those kids look like during the headlights college, you get a mix of guys that are really good guys that maybe yeah. are ready for the, the red light to come on and the pro level. They're all pretty good. And so, you know, you can ask them just about anything and, you know, we pick out guys with personality if we can, you know, Marcus Polino, I think Ryan Suter, Zach Parisi, Devin Dubnik, Stalock. These are guys that are just oozing personality that want to give you something anyway. 
And so you just try to you try to come up with something they haven't gotten from the broadcast. The fans might be interested in, and you try not to stumble onto the same old stuff. It's not easy, like you mentioned, and you try to freshen it up as best you can. But when you're doing 82 games and into the playoffs, I think sometimes it, it gets a little bit of a be of a challenge. But um, it's a labor of love, that's for sure. So uh, FSN, do they broadcast every game, or is there some that are still on local? Some are still NBC. Um, we're we're probably you know. At this stage of the game, doing 72 or 73 of the games every year, plus playoffs, plus a couple in the preseason. And you're so going, and you're on the road. You're going on the road too, right? Yeah, wherever they go, we go. So if they're on the road, we're on the road. We're at practice. We'll you, shoot some of the stuff. Um, do you fly with the, with the team or do you fly commercial? We're with the team. We're on the team charter. Uh, we sit in the back of the plane with the radio guys. So you get Tom Reed, you get Bob Kurtz, you get our producer, our director, LaPanta whoever the analyst is. Um, so it's it's broadcasters in the back, players in the middle, and then coaches up front. Okay. Um, and then talk about the game itself. Uh, when you're in the game, where do you stand when you're in the game? Because, like, you don't just stand at, at ice level the entire game, do you? No, I move around. You know, in the first period, I'm always up on the concourse level. I do my first um, hit in the game from one of the sections on the main concourse. And then usually the second and third period, I've got a monitor in the tunnel kind of behind the bench. And I usually stand right in that tunnel with some of the trainers behind the bench. That way I can keep an eye on the players if they're getting nicked up or injured or if there's an equipment issue. And I can kind of watch the jumbotron right above the bench. And then I've got a feel for some of the conversations that are going on down there. And as a silent reporter, I kind of think that puts me in the best spot for the interviews. And if something does come up where I need to get some information to the truck, or to Lapanta and his color analyst in the booth, I've got, you know, that, that spot gives me the best chance to catch some of that stuff. So the camera guy, where's the camera, your camera guy who's going to shoot you? Is he like literally standing next to you or does he have a different game assignment than just the, the, uh, between period interview? Yeah. He's usually somewhere else shooting the game. And then with about a minute to go in the period, they'll he's, release him to come running down to the locker room to shoot that interview. He's trucking. So he's doing double duty, right? Yes. Those guys, man, I'm telling you. Lugging those cameras and running around the rink. They they put their time in, to say the least. And the best part about it is the camera guy has a guy who's carrying the cord for him, too, right? He does. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> that people don't realize how much goes into this behind the scenes to make you guys look good. Yeah, there's forty or you know, thirty or forty men and women on every broadcast, from the truck to the camera operators, to the set directors, to the stage managers, to the two guys. I mean, there's people everywhere that are that are making us look good. I mean, it, it's, it's remarkable the amount of time and effort that goes into these broadcasts. The crew that's trying to make us look good gets there usually late in the morning and they're there till close to midnight. They're putting in 12 to 15 hours. So yeah, there's a ton of that goes into it. You're building graphics, you're getting replays set. You're, you're trying to have as much footage from old games that tie into this game. And yeah, it, it takes a village to, to put a, just one regular season broadcast out there for wild hockey. So I, I've always talked to you about our mutual friend, Pat O'Connor, who's done this and I've got a chance during the state tournament. And then obviously a couple regular season wild games to see him run that broadcast and the things that he's doing, managing all the different camera people, all the different audio, all the different highlights, all the different replays. You mentioned it's like 40 people, but if one person flubs up out of those 40 at a, any given time, the whole state of Minnesota sees it. Yeah, you screw up there, there's nowhere to hide. And so it, it's a lot of pressure. And we've had to deal with a lot of different, you know, obstacles along the way. I, I won't forget at the start of the 
the season up in Winnipeg, we lost all power to our truck. There was a, a band in Winnipeg playing the anthem in the Zamboni tunnel. And when they got done and got going at the start of the first period, they, they looked to unplug their equipment, but actually hit a, a button that would turn down all the power to the truck. Oh my God. So we're flying blind. And so these are the type of things that the folks in the truck are dealing with on a regular basis, how they keep it all together. I'll never know. And when you see the truck and see the different wires coming out of there, I, I don't know. I marvel at what they're able to do and how they're able to do it. It is, it is remarkable that, that they're able to keep it all organized the way they do. And I can't uh, obviously duplicate what Pat does, but I'll just never forget we were, we were in the truck and there was a, a goal scored. It was a wild game with goal scored. And I'll never forget this line that he says, and you'll get a kick out of this. He's like, give me the hero, give me the hero, meaning what he's telling to the, the guy who's – He's trying to find the guy who scored the goal. He wants to get video of the guy who scores the goal. He's not calling him Parisi. He's calling him the hero because that's really what they're all about is trying to find the hero, uh, a visual photo of the hero. And your job is, is, to, is to track all that. You're probably listening to some of this stuff as, as the game's going on. Yeah, that's, you know, for me, I, I try to listen to all that, you know, the conversations that come up because – Every night there's a different story and it's unscripted and we never know how it's going to play out and it can change in the blink of an eye. So you have to kind of pay attention shift by shift because the story a lot of times will look like it's going to be one thing and then one shift happens and it completely goes a different direction. So you're right. The, the conversations you pick up on having those guys in your ear are kind of the lifeblood of what we're trying to do. The same thing happens to me when I'm out covering an isolated high school hockey game. All right, I got the, I got a kid. It's three to nothing. He's got two goals and an assist. I just start shooting still photos of this kid, right? And yep. sh- that's the that's the kiss of death, by the way, because five minutes later the other team will go score four goals, and I've already started to write the story of the game, and now I've <laughs> lost the story, right? And you've you've seen that before too, right? Where you already got it in your head how you're going to start interviewing this person, and then the game totally changes in in a, in a blink of an eye. Yeah, that's the hardest part. When it changes, you got to kind of redirect all your thoughts, all your energy into a completely different storyline. And so there are challenges along the way, but that's what makes the job so great. When I when I talk to kids, whether it's high school or, or college kids that are interested in the business, to me, it's one of my favorite parts of the job is we never know what we're going to get. So many people that work in this world do the same thing every single day. They're at their cubicle. They're doing great work, whatever they're doing but we don't know. And every single day we're treated to something that's completely spontaneous. There's an energy about that. There's a thrill about that. And I think it's why you go into covering sports because um, you want to bring that story out. You want to tell the story. You want to react to it. You want the players to, you, you kind of feed off their energy and what they're going through. And it is so much fun to be at the rink every single day and be a part of that. So my son does a, like a lot of nights I'll go out to cover a game and he's a college student at Iowa state and he'll be, he'll follow our Twitter feed. So I, I give him like assign him like the 10 big games of the day. Right. So I get out of the car and a buddy of mine texts me. He goes, how about Irondale? Irondale just beats White Bear Lake this year one to nothing, and the goalie makes 60 saves. You've seen this story, right? Yeah. So I get on the phone with him. I'm like, hey, did you get the Irondale score? He's like, what Irondale score? I'm like, Irondale beat White Bear Lake. He goes, no, what? You know what I mean? That's how crazy this game is. You can, you, if you know that, no one covers the White Bear Lake Irondale game because they're number one in the state. They were number one in the state. They got beat by a team that they had lost to 10 to one two weeks before. This is why yeah. it's so fun, right? And that that's that takes you back to why you watch sports in the first place. I mean, I go back to the 1980 Olympics and how that team had been embarrassed by the Russians and there was no way they were going to win. But those are the games when they do happen. 
that keep you coming back to watch again because it's true. As much as you hate to, you know, hear the cliche over and over again, but any given day, any given night, anybody can beat anybody else. And when Irondale won that game, it was an unbelievable story. But preparing for that night of hockey, that would have been in your top ten priorities. It wasn't. Nobody wants to hear about a, a game that's going to probably end in running time. I didn't even have him tweeting it. Why would you tweet that game? It was going to be ten to nothing, and my Twitter feed doesn't need any more garbage in there. We were trying to find just the good games, and here the biggest upset of the year, and we hadn't even tweeted it by nine thirty p.m. Unbelievable. And he was pissed too. He's like, I can't believe that. I'm like, we missed it. You know, it just it's it not happens. the end of the world, but it just happens, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so we talked, just dabbed a little bit of high school hockey there. You've been on the broadcast for every hockey day, Minnesota. I'm sure you have some just great memories. What's one that kind of stands out for you as to whether it be the coldest day or the funniest day or the the greatest moment or most disappointing moment uh, as you've been been a part of it? There's been some really, really good additions of hockey day, but you know, if I had to pick one, I would probably go back to Grand Rapids. We were out on Lake Pacagama. Um, Benil St. Margaret's was at their peak. They were a state power at the time. And to see Grand Rapids win just a emotional back and forth overtime game and to see the pride. And, you know, I, I think for hockey day, it's at its very best when it's in a small town and Grand Rapids is such a great hockey town. And to see how much pride came through that day. I mean, they've all been great. But that that moment, that day, dealing Pretty with the cool. weather, it was windy, it was cold. It was a it was a very memorable addition for sure. My favorite hockey day moment, um, and you mentioned it in one of these podcasts, and I was like, ah, man, Gorgie and I again on the exact same page is the Nate Prosser Elk River Day. I mean, you can't make it up, right? I'm like, this just happened. That that one almost seemed scripted. It was so good. Yes. Hanky Pit, light snow falling, Elk River, and then that night. A kid from Elk River scores the the overtime winner for the Wild. You you really couldn't have written a better script. People wouldn't have believed you because Nate Prosser, as people remember, as great a guy as he was and as solid a player as he was, he didn't score that often. So the fact that he did score that goal made it even more remarkable and even more special. Yeah. All right. So we got to go fast because there's a lot of other stuff I want to get to here. Uh, I have story. I, I call this in, in my headings here. I call this story time with Kevin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which one do you want to go with first? A coaching one or a St. Thomas dorm room one? Which one do you want to pick first? Let's go with the dorm room because it'll never get any better than that. Okay, good. All right. Uh, repaint the picture. We talked about Mike Luckcraft. He's not a, he's not a St. Thomas student, but he goes to the U at the time and you guys are still good friends. You'd go down to the U for some parties. He'd come to St. Thomas for parties. Uh, one particular night, it gets a little, it gets a little sideways. Walk me through how you pulled one of the greatest pranks in the history of college pranks. So yeah, we go back and forth. And this particular night, we were partying in St. Paul, having a great time. And we're, you know, we've been overserved, and we're back at the dorms. We've eaten our pizza, and now we're we're getting ready to tuck in. But before we tuck in, back then they had these these uh, these phone books that included all the students that lived on and off campus at St. Thomas. So you could track down your fellow classmates and, and their phone numbers too, right? Their dorm room and their phone number. This is before the internet again. This is, you know, we're talking about 1987 ish. And so we were going back and forth doing these little fun prank calls to females on campus. Some I knew, some I didn't know. And you try to one up each other. And, you know, these are late night, drunken, goofy calls, right? So we're going back and forth. This goes on for 15 or 20 minutes. And so finally now, I, I tell Mike, all right, Lucky, I said, this is going to be the, the final one. This has to be your very best. And I said, 
this young lady is she's beautiful she's smart she's articulate but you know she kind of knows it and she kind of has that air about her so i said i need you to dig deep here and give me your best you know 45 seconds we'll show her here at 3 15 in the morning on a particular saturday night in st paul so as i pick up the phone <laughs> i dial his parents uh house back in burnsville without him i said all right lucky here she is go get her hand him the phone and he absolutely lets loose and i won't repeat it but it was aggressive it was still and he was just giving her the business and about 30 seconds into this he hears a half asleep michael is this you and it's his mother's voice he slams the phone down his face is white as a goat and i am rolling on the floor i'm writhing laughing so hard and uh he absolutely knew he had been had. And I know that as the weeks and months went by, there were conversations when this would come up. And his dad finally pulled him aside and says, Mike, what were you doing? And so it, it's one of those situations where because he was half asleep, because he had been drinking, because we had kind of handed the phone back and forth, he was never going to see me dial that home number. And because he just laid into her for 30 to 45 seconds after she half asleep said hello, he didn't know who he was talking to. Oh. And when you heard his mother's voice say that, he was petrified. As oh, that was so good. I heard that story. I, I've heard the R version instead of the PG-13 one that you just gave us. And I was in tears laughing and, and forever thought crazy. you were. This is way before you. I heard the story way before you were a, a sports legend. And I was like, man, that guy's the best. That is the best. And we could elaborate a little bit. I, I, I always make it a point when I see when I make it to Northfield games, I get down there about once every two years. And I always remind the players on the bench of what a great hockey player Mike was. A phenomenal player, honestly. He drafted by the Detroit Red Wings. And evidence of his talent, I'll never forget it because I felt like I was shorted in assist. During the state championship game, I think it was the second period, Hill Murray fired the puck in. I went behind the net, set the puck up, gave it to Mike. Mike took the puck behind my net. And Hill Murray was a terrific team. And he went through every single player on the ice, went around all five players, came in, got a backhand, shot on Horvath, he stopped it, got the rebound, put it in. So he basically went main to bound. He went from our end to that end, beat all five players, and beat the goalie. And that type of talent on the blue line was rare at the high school level. What did you just say? He went main to what? Main to Maui. Yeah, Maui. Was, God, I knew it was clever, but I didn't hear what the, the punchline was. Yeah, it was a remarkable play. 1985, I'm sure, somewhere in the annals of YouTube you can find it. Uh, Lucky was just such a great player, such great hands, and he had the speed to go with it. All right. Well, the the first story time with Kevin was making fun of a good friend. Uh, this one, we're going to make fun of you a little bit. Um, it's, and, uh, it's, it's early in your career, coaching career. True or false, at some point, did you ever throw a sport coat of yours onto the ice? Yeah, I might have. That might have <laughs> happened. Um, you know, and if it might have happened, how did it maybe happen? Well, there was a situation during the game that I didn't agree with the call on the ice. And when the official finally acknowledged me from across the ice, he knew how mad I was, did the right thing, didn't come across the ice, which at the time upset me even more. And I was young, just a little bit immature. I'll admit this. And I was in the wrong. And then I just took the sport call up through the ice. So you have to come over and not drop the puck and at least hear a little more of what I had to say. 
pretty certain I got bounced and I deserved it. And it's something that to this day I regret doing, but it did happen. And no excuse because we've all done it, right? We've all were young at some point and make mistakes. What did you learn from that? You know, not necessarily 10 hours later, but maybe 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years later. Well, I learned that number one, if you lose your cool, they're never going to change the call. You, all you really want to do is let them know how you feel as, as respectfully as you can. And then by, you know, getting a bench minor and slowing the game down and getting the boot, you, you're not doing your team any favors either. And so, I, you know, you learn as a young coach that as emphatic as you were, as much passion as you had for your opinion at that time, there was a better way to probably implore <laughs> said opinion and get through that time because in the end, you become the, the butt end of a joke rather than, you know, get the official to have any semblance of maybe giving you a call down the road. All right. We got to, I'm go, trying to go as fast as I can here. Uh, I, one of our passions that we uh, actually talked about before the show was horse racing. And I know you've talked about it a little bit with the two previous, especially with Chorsky a little bit, but I'd love to just kind of dig in, roll up our sleeves on some high level stuff. Uh, let's go triple crown. I didn't, and the best part is I've been to triple crown probably that we've been at the same one. Um, what's your favorite triple crown horse that won the triple crown? You know, even though I didn't come to horse racing until 1985, for me, just knowing now how difficult it was, knowing now how big horse racing was in the early 70s, and knowing what I know about the actual equine athlete, it has to be Secretariat. For me, um, the greatest racehorse of all time, and I love when they do the documentary on ESPN, and he's one of the 50 greatest athletes, and they do this, I think it's an hour. Yeah, like I was going to, it's unbelievable. When they did the autopsy on, on Secretariat after he passed on, his heart was two and a half times the size of any other heart, of any other racehorse they'd ever seen, which means he had a bigger and better engine, which proves his quality and proves what a remarkable horse he was. So it's got to be Secretariat for me. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I watched the same documentary probably two or three times. And by the way, he beat Oscar Robertson in that list. Like he was like number 38 and Rob, no. Rob right? That was that was the joke, right? Like exactly. he, he was thirty eight of the top fifty athletes ESPN done, and then Oscar Robertson was thirty nine. So like he was like mocked by his friends that he got beat by a horse. Um, but the other secretary phenomenon that people don't realize is when he won the Belmont, which is like again a mile and a half by like thirty lengths. Yeah, I have a picture in my office of the jockey looking back, and literally. As he's getting into mid-stretch, the horses are behind him are just getting to the stretch run. 31 and a half lengths. It'll never be duplicated. He he embarrassed the field. And at that level, in a grade one race, in a triple crown race, that tells you just the immense talent that Secretariat had. And that picture captures just what he meant to the game. He was, you know, as we look at Wayne Gretzky, and I've talked about, he was the phenom in the game in 1973. And he's the legend that I think all race horses try to measure up to now the great ones. We've seen a couple of recent triple crowners. It all goes back for most people in the game now to secretary. He's the benchmark. They're all measured by. All right. So what was the favorite horse that didn't win it that you kind of go back to is the, you know, the one that you think, ah, oh, that's the one I really wanted to see win it. Well, you know, there was a horse named real quiet that ran in 1998 and his his owner was Mike Pegram, who made a bunch of money franchising McDonald's um, 
in restaurants all around America. He was a beer drinking, fun loving guy. He's the kind of guy you wanted to bump into to watch, you know, game seven of the World Series with. He was that guy. He'd be buying you beers and sharing great sports stories. Mike Pegram owned the horse. Real quiet won the Derby and the Preakness and looked like a horse was ready to win the Triple Crown. So I was in the grandstand in 1998 at Belmont Park with Mark Mackesy, my good friend. And we're getting set to watch the Belmont Stakes. Now, in New York. So, set the scene here. So, so how do you decide, hey, Mac, because we're obviously friends. Hey, Mac, let's go to the Belmont. Or was this, was this pre-planned? How many weeks out? How did how'd you get there? Months in advance, we're planning on going to the Belmont. He, at the time, lived in Philadelphia, worked in Philadelphia, and it was an easy train ride into New York. Mm-hmm. So, he was my connection to the East Coast. He was my good buddy, my former college roommate. And so, we were going to this race. And that is the Derby and Preakness play out before our eyes. We've gotten our Belmont tickets. We're like, this is unbelievable. We're going to fall into maybe a run in history here. And so we take the train down there that day. And yep. it's a beautiful day in, in New York. And everybody is just amped. They're buying their $2 tickets so they can have these stacks of tickets that say, I was there that day. You can frame them. I mean, we are ready to see history in the making. It hadn't happened since the late 70s. We're pumped. And there's 115,000 people. And these are hardcore New Yorkers who scream at the television for their little $8 bet during race five. But come Belmont time, they're all on the same page, right? And the, and the race unfolds, and Kent DeSormo, his jockey, uh, around the far turn, uses this keen turn of speed, and all of a sudden, real quiet, goes from being in a dogfight to being five lengths clear, and then the entire 115,000 rise as one. And even though we had all bet different horses, and there were 12 horses in that race, at that moment, every single person, is screaming for the idea that they're going to see history in the making. They're going to see this triple crown we've been starving for 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 20-plus years. And they get to mid-stretch, and the lead's down to three, and they get to the final furlong, and the lead's down to a length and a half. And you're watching this horror play out as Victory Gallup and Gary Stevens are rallying late. And now you can see the two horses are going to hit the wire at about the same time. And as they hit the wire, it goes from literally – like a goal in a Stanley Cup game where everybody is screaming at the top of their lungs to all of a sudden a car accident where it's just dead silent. Everybody's like, what just happened? Number one, it looked like he lost. Number two, it's a photo and it's a long photo. Yes. And nobody knows for like four or five minutes and we're watching the replay and then you see the, the number get put up and it's not real quiet. He loses by a nose and people drop their programs. They throw their tickets and off the train. We all go depressed. And we didn't get to see this triple crown. I remember that. And that's one of those. It's so funny. I, it's like we're the same person because this is <laughs> this was my this was the one I was going to list. Right. Uh, because it was such when I, I remember watching that race on TV. And, and there was another thing I remember about it is they put up 11, which was victory gallop. Uh, they put it up and then they took it down for like literally about 30 seconds. So people went and yeah. then they put it back up again. Because I think there was something, I think there was going to be like a... There there was some bumping late in the race. So when the stewards put the inquiry up, there's going to be a blink to those top two numbers. And even though it looked like real quiet, impeded victory gallop right near the wire, because the storm will kind of drip it out to make sure real quiet could see him coming. With the inquiry, there was some confusion. And now fans were kind of sitting there through those three or four minutes wondering, okay, looks like we lost the photo. There's an inquiry. What's going to happen? Who's going to win? And we hadn't seen anything like that until the, the most recent Kentucky Derby last year where maximum security uh, won the race but got DQ. And there was yes. that long period of time where the numbers are flashing where you really don't know what's going to happen. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. That was the that's the race. I mean, I've seen a lot of Kentucky Derbies, and 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 I want to just talk to you about televising the uh, the uh, the triple crown. Does any does any does any sport for that with a two minute bit of action do it better than horse racing? Well, I think you're right, and I think they have to. And I think the biggest difference is when you watch, yeah, you got to work harder, don't they? Well, because you're trying to fill, like, if you look at what NBC does, and there are some undercard races, but by the time it gets to the Derby, you've got two hours of programming from that last second to last race to the Derby when the, when the race is run, well, you've got to tell all the stories. And being that it's horse racing and the trainers and jockeys are so unique and so much fun and there's so many great stories of how they got there and the heartbreak and, you know, the typical coming from nowhere. And then the owners of these horses and their backstory, um, you've got two hours to fill before you get to a race that's going to be roughly two minutes long. Whereas when you get to the Stanley Cup or the World Series, you don't have the, the gap in time there to tell the story because the sporting event of your three-hour broadcast takes up two hours and 45 minutes. Yes. It's the complete opposite. So horse racing is allowed that time, and they do a wonderful job of bringing out the stories. It can be as simple as why the silks of a certain horse are a certain color. And every every horse has so many ripples and so many stories from the jockey to the trainer to the owner to the groom to the jockey silks to the mom to the dad to the grandma to the grandpa. You know, it's a game of lineage. It's a game of history. And they're all tied back to the same. And so, yeah, it's it's really cool to see that broadcast comes out. The, and the other part of this that I revel as, you know, owner, being the owner of an advertising agency where we built commercials and we had to go on site and spend a lot of money. The amount of money that they have to spend to send out a camera crew to, to Kentucky or to wherever these people are making these horses to run these stories, it's a very expensive production versus just running some highlights off of a, a, off of a video camera feed. Yeah, you've got to you know you got to be entrenched. You've got to be able to kind of dig deep to to get those stories. You've got to go on location to a lot of the horse farms where these horses were bred. Uh, the owners come from all over, different countries, different parts of the world. Um, so yeah, if you're going to do it and do it right, which they do at that Triple Crown level, um, there is a ton of free work that goes into it. Yeah, I got to say, if you, if you if you like horse racing, or if you if you've never even seen horse racing. I, Tune into the Kentucky Derby. Tune into the Preakness. Tune into the Belmont. It's 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 one of a kind uh, sporting uh, life, which leads to the life you've lived at Canterbury Downs um, since 2000. You've been employed in some fashion in the horse racing um, business. Um, walk through. You have to have a, a a good story or two working here locally with some of the local trainers and or, or even the owners of the Sampson family or the owners down there uh, over the years. Yeah, I think that, you know, over the years, um, there have been a lot of highlights. And I started, you know, I, I had never watched a horse race. And I was a senior at Burnsville in 85. And Canterbury Downs opened up that year in Shakopee. And it was the talk of the town. It was the place to be. And a bunch of us got it in the really car was. Down there and for the first time, we were kind of, you know, in awe of the event of horse racing. And I personally fell in love with the game. And Canterbury Downs turned into Canterbury Park. You mentioned the Sampson family, and I started there in 2000. I did 10 years of TV work as their analyst in the paddock, and then I took over writing for the Star Tribune, did the analysis in the sports section there for a handful of years. And then when when Joe Mauer's grandpa Jake retired a few years back, I took over doing the tip sheet. And I guess some of the highlights for me is, you know, interviewing a jockey named Julie Crone, who mm-hmm. is still the only female to have won a Triple Crown race. She won the Belmont Stakes. Uh, in years gone by, she won a race at Canterbury in one of our claiming crown years. I got to interview Julie Crone. 
I got to interview Toby Keith, uh, one of his horses. He's big into horse racing. And one of his horses won one of our stakes races. I got to interview that guy. Couldn't believe what a nice guy he was. Big, giant guy, great personality. And then just, you know, every day being out there and and being a part of a, you know, a game like Canterbury puts out where I got to know the trainers and the jockeys and the owners and how much care goes into it. And taking my daughters on the backside, Troy Bethke, one of the local trainers here that's been at Canterbury since the mid eighties was nice enough to open up his barn to me and my daughters. And so once a week, taking my three girls out there, bringing a big bag of carrots and feeding his horses and letting my daughters pet those beautiful creatures. I mean, it, it, it's been a labor of love since I came to the game in 85 and it's just been amplified by my last 20 years as an employee at Canterbury. My favorite story, uh, my, my, my story was the first trip uh, to Canterbury Downs. I, I was trying to make it with this girl named Claire, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't make it up. I got $20 and we're out there at the park and the first race, there's a horse named On a Claire Day. Can't make it up. And it won. It was a 20 to one long shot. And I think that's the day I fell in love with horse racing. And I'm, I'm always out there. I, I, I love watching the horses. The can, uh, the triple ground is still one of my favorite activities. I'll be on a golf course in, in early June and it'll be 445, 450. And people are like, why do you keep looking at your watch? I'm like, cause the, cause the Belmont's going to run here in about 18 minutes and I'm going to go ahead right to the clubhouse and watch it. Cause no round of golf is as good enough as watching a triple crown winner try to crown it self and i'm going to tell you right now for the folks that are listening to this podcast number one i really appreciate it and if you're still here and you're listening to this horse racing talk i'm going to give you a recommendation during this quarantine to go watch one movie and one movie only and, and i haven't told you tony what this movie is but i'm going to tell you right now all right richard dreyfus terry gar and jennifer tilly the movie is called let it ride yes i'm going to tell you right now you will fall in love with richard dreyfus the horse player but it'll, it'll lead you to come to a racetrack near you to play the horses, if only for a day. I'm telling you right now, let it ride. Is that the everything about the game that I love so much? The personalities behind the scenes and the quirky nature to horse racing. It is a phenomenal watch. Is that the line where the, the friend says, tell you what, you give me half the money, I'll kick you in the nuts, and then you we'll call it a day. Is that the line? That's Vegas vacation. Oh, it is. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. But the line, the line in this one, which my late great, God bless him, uh, friend Dark Star used to always say when he walked in the press box, Dark, you betting today? Am I betting today? Of course I'm betting. You could be walking around lucky today and not even know it. I'm putting my money through the window today. And that's the line of the movie. You could be walking around lucky and not even know it. And it's yeah. these two degenerates that drive a cab and one of the guys has a couple of horse racing guys in the back seat talking about a horse that can't lose that particular next day, horse named Charity. The one guy that's down on his luck tells Richard Dreyfus they're both cabbies. They're meeting at the end of a shift at the bar. All these personalities, they're going to bet this horse. He's got a, his wife is Terry Gar. They've got this big date uh, plan, and he, of course, ends up at the racetrack with his buddies. And it is it's a comedy it's got some drama. It's hilarious. But if you want to dive into horse racing, Let It Ride is the movie for you. It is just 
spectacular. Well, I'll try to get a, a link to that on Amazon Prime for everybody to go check out tonight um, after, mm-hmm. they, after they listen to this marathon. Uh, well, you just, man, you're like Mr. Segway here because that was the next topic. It, you've talked movies quite a bit, Star is Born, blah, 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 on your other two podcasts, but we're not going to go to Star is Born. Uh, we're going to stick to some, some of your favorite movies here, and I've, I've got a list of them here. Um, your favorite drama. Ooh, favorite drama. All right. I have to say Shawshank Redemption. To me, it's, it's an epic. Um, if it's on and it's on and I'm clicking around, I can't I can't turn away. I've got to watch it again. I, I, I have about seven or eight scenes from Shawshank that I use as examples in life. Yep. Every day I use that. Like I used one just recently about, Oh yeah. You remember when uh, Morgan Freeman uh, left prison and he, and he liked being in prison better than prison, <laughs> you know? So that it's like, it's the old care, careful what you wish for kind of thing. Like I really want to get out of prison, but actually prison's better than what, what your regular life is. No question. That movie is just, it's, if you haven't seen, I'm sure most of our listeners have, but if you haven't, it's, it's another one during quarantine here. That's well worth your time. All right. Mine is good fellas. That's an easy one. Great pick. Great pick. Um, favorite scary movie? Well, you know what? It's funny. Uh, last summer, I was down in Texas with the twins, and I flew down commercial to meet them because I was only doing part of the road trip. And I landed, and I had a night off before I worked a four-game series on the weekend. It was a Wednesday night. And I check in, and the lady at the front desk says, are you a movie guy? And I'm like, God, am I a movie guy? I'm almost a movie addict. She goes, well, they, the theater just two blocks away does a thing on Wednesdays for five bucks where they show old movies from days gone by. And just so happens that you've got 15 minutes. If you want to go, they're showing Jaws. I'm like, I have not seen Jaws in 30 years. And I remember when I was a kid, what an impact it had on my life because we'd go to the lake and we'd swim. We'd go to pools and swim. Swimming was a part of our everyday life. We were outdoors all the time. Right. It changed my life when I saw Jaws. We were going to Florida the next year with my family for a family vacation. I wouldn't go in the ocean. And on this particular night last year in Texas, I went to go see it, and I loved it. One more time on the big screen. You want scary? I'll give you scary. I'm going to go Jaws. Oh, it was awful. That scared me to death. Yeah, All right. Uh, mine is Silence of the Lambs. Oh, that one is a mental kind <laughs> of a movie. Oh, I'll help you catch him, Clarice. <laughs> With some fava beans, right? I mean, so good, so good. So I didn't know it was scary. I thought it was like I didn't even know what I was getting into when I when I when I first saw it. I was like, well, I you know, it's it's, it'll just be a a drama. And wow, was I? I was like squeezing my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time, squeezing her hand. I'm like, this is awful. Get me out of here. Just so creepy, right? When the lights are out. And he's got the night vision on the yes, and he's trying to figure out where he is. And she's such a likable character in that movie. Yeah. Um, If that doesn't make your skin crawl, nothing will. No. Oh, with the bugs and the the hole in his house. It was just awful. So awful. All right. Favorite comedy. This will be good. Well, I mean, for me, it's got to be Fletch. Um, You know, Mark was seeking. I, the guy you had on last week, the day that it came out, we were so excited to see it. We drove to the Burnsville Center and saw the very first showing, which I think was somewhere around 12. We liked it so much, we stayed for the 3 o'clock. We went home, showered, got dressed up, and had a double date that night. Took our dates back to see it for the first time. <laughs> day. Um, Three times in one day? Opening day with Fletch. It was, uh, it was, it was remarkable. Chevy Chase in his, in his very 
I, I think in his peak form, at his very best, for me, it's got to be Fletch. When you're listening to an album or listen, do you ever hit the repeat button to listen to the song over and over again? Oh God, yeah. All Absolutely. right, just check. So do I. I, I when my this doesn't really fall into that category, but my movie that I saw a bunch. It was '84, summer of '84, when when Purple Rain came out. I think I must have seen that movie. Probably ten times, paid full well, price at the theater. Apollonia, right? What's that's, that? That's, you had a big crush on Apollonia. Oh, who didn't? Right? I didn't, I'll admit to it. <laughs> All right, my favorite comedy is Coming to America, and I don't know why. It's just kind of like Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, just at their best, absolute best. That was very, very good. That's back when Arsenio had that talk show. So you're right; he was at his at the top of his game. Eddie Murphy, as brilliant as comedian as we'll ever see, and. You know, that was one of those movies, too, where the more you watched it, the more you picked the up on it. better it got, yes. It, yeah, I, so I do like your pick. Yeah, I mean, I still there's still jokes when I watch it. it, it kind of like you talk about Shawshank for me. I totally agree. When that thing comes on, a you know, on USA Channel or somewhere, I gotta I stop everything and watch it. Same with Coming to America. I'm like, I gotta watch this. This there's gonna be there's five to ten minutes in every scene, every one of those movie in that movie where you can just fall in love. No question. All right. Uh, last three questions. This is there's this is where it gets fun. Uh, these are I call these Kevin questions. All right. This is this is going to be an embarrassing one. Uh, you, you started in the in the really uh, broadcasting in 2007. You had broadcasted for uh, high school hockey, more on on the cable level. Uh, you had done a lot of stuff at, at Canterbury, so you weren't really unfamiliar with broadcasting. But you started in 2007. You've been going strong for 13 years. Now you you kind of got your hand on on the pulse of what's going on in Minnesota sports. If there's a big game in Minnesota, you're going to be there. What makes Kevin Gorg so lovable? Oh, jeez. Right? I mean, because in theory, they wouldn't keep you around uh, if you weren't doing some great work. And I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of your personality. Well, I don't. Certainly, I drive a lot of people that are closest to me bananas. So you get different answers from a lot of people on this one. But I'll go back to one of of my um, favorite and best bosses told me years ago. His name was Jeff Bile. He now runs Fox Sports Detroit. He's worked out in California at Fox Sports San Diego. He ran our station for uh, six, eight years back. Uh, and he was terrific. And, you know, I was going through a change where I was kind of being asked to be a host one night, a sideline reporter one night, an analyst another. And so we were sitting down, kind of breaking it all down. And he looked at me and he goes, here's what works for you. And here's why I don't want you to change. He said, when people watch Kevin Gorg, they see the guy like themselves that they'd want to have at the bar, having a bite to eat and watch the game with. You don't look like a TV guy. You don't sound like a TV guy. And he said, don't take that the wrong way, but don't try to be something you're not. And so I, I've taken that to heart over the years, and I've tried to be myself. The passion and the enthusiasm that I try to bring out is real. It's not fake. I think if you fake that, I think it becomes really almost like cartoon character-like. You right. can't do it. I love where I'm at. I love being around the team. I love being involved in the game. And I'm a fan. Like I love the games that I cover. I grew up loving the North Stars and loving the Minnesota Twins. Now it's the Wild and it's the Twins. And so I feel blessed to be there. Every night's an adventure. And so I think that comes out in the broadcast. So I have no idea whether I am or I am not lovable. But if I am, it's because I, I go back to kind of being myself and not trying to be something I'm not. 
Well, I agree with that. And and there's lots of broad and I always joke. I I've talked about this before we started the show and it's you you watch a broadcast of, you know, you could be watching ESPN, you could be watching CBS and and you know, invariably with three or four guys, one's not going to like them. I've rarely rarely I've never heard someone I don't like Kevin Gorg. It's well, just a fact. It's like I never I've heard heard, heard that. Not as often. I think it's easier to rip on a guy like LaPanther or a play-by-play guy because they say more. They're on more. So my, part of it might just be that I'm only on in intermittent fashion. So <laughs> I think it's That's true. both ways. But, um, you know, and I think the other thing is, is I've been able to foster a really good relationship with the managers, the coaches, and the players. And, you know, I think that's important. I think that also comes out in the broadcast. And I think fans, um, whether they like you or they don't like it, if you can bring out the best in those guys, yeah, that they'll they'll be happy and they'll leave you alone. <laughs> I agree. All right, um, this is a question that's kind of a journalism question because you didn't go to Syracuse, you know, you didn't go to where all that you know, or Bob Costas went to school. You know, you basically grew up learning this uh, as a trade, you know. And I I don't really have a big of as a journalism degree either, so I kind of have that fine line when I'm you know being friends with really friendly with like Sammy Walker, and then I have to interview Sammy Walker. You know, it's the same thing. Like, where do you draw the line with having pom poms? Because you really want to see a kid like Zach Parisi or Sammy Walker succeed. Where do you draw the line between Mike Wallace, journalist, and pom poms? Well, you you start by understanding that as an employee of Fox Sports North, you're a team partner, and so right away you want the team to do well and you want to show them in the best light. However, the Wallace side of the equation is we work and live in Minnesota where every single person watching knows the game of hockey. I mean, these are either coaches, players, or parents or uncles or aunts of hockey players. So they're at the rank. They know the game. So you can't fake that. And so you have to at least be honest. And you know, if you're going to be negative, it's got to be respectful to the team partner, which in our case is the Minnesota wild, but you also have to, you know, listen, if it's a seven, one game and you're out there talking to one of the players, you're not going to be dressing it up. I mean, you're going to be as honest as you can, because you're trying to get an answer that is raw from that player. And I did it this year with a guy I don't know very well. And Matt Zuccarello, and he called his team out on the carpet and said, you know what, this isn't good enough. We're embarrassed and we need to be better. And so when you go through seasons like the year we lost Mike Yo, and this year we lost Bruce Boudreau, um, there's going to be some tough interviews and some tough times, and you got to do just as good a job in those interviews as you do when they win a game. And those are the easy ones. When the team's going well and they're winning, you're going to get nothing but guys raising their hand to come talk to you. When they're getting their butts kicked or their coach fired and they're going through a tough time, that's when the true test of any interviewer or broadcaster is going to come through because they don't want to be out there at that time. And someone's got to come out. Because the fans want to hear what's going on. You know, that's what the fans need to hear, you know, whether it's right or wrong, that this team needs to be better. And the best part about your job is you get the first interview. You know, there's guys that the print media has to wait until you actually ask all the the first questions. They get the fourth, fifth, sixth questions in the press room. And the first one is usually the most real answer. You know, you're right. It is a a big uh, advantage that we have is when they first come off the ice, I'm the first guy they see. I'm with either uh, Megan Cougat or Aaron Sickman, the PR folks for the wild. And, and they're going to get that player to us right away. And that gives us a big advantage because we're getting that raw answer, the emotion sweat and, on their face still. Right. Dude, trust me. I, I end up soaked sometimes <laughs> because I'm so much shorter than most of these guys. I mean, when I interviewed Dubnik or Jordan Greenway, I, I look like I need a milk carton to stand on for God's sake. 
Oh, that's funny. All right. I want to really touch on, you know, I talked the lovable thing. I'm not trying to pump your tires here much, but you mentioned a couple times I'm, I'm you're, you're there every day. Like, like, and, and these are more like future broadcasters or kids who might think they want to get into this industry. Um, I, I want to talk about your work ethic because it's not an easy job. This is not a nine to five and then go to your daughter's comp cheer on, on Saturday mornings, right? This is a, you've made a lot of sacrifices um, and, and spend a ton more time than just your 40-hour-a-day work job. Talk about the work ethic and what every day means because you're every time there's a game, you're every time there's a practice, you're at every practice. This is a really – this is just the hockey season. You know, you don't have the – you have to go – you go into a twin season following this. Your work ethic is as strong as anyone I know. Well, again, it's a labor of love, so that helps if you've got some passion for it. But I will tell folks that it does carve into family time. I mean, you know, we're, we're traveling a lot. We're working weekends. That's when sports are played. Um, you have to be willing to kind of balance that out and make time for your family when you can, because that's certainly very, very important, but um, you got to love what you're doing. And so when we're at the rink watching a practice, you know, we're not just watching a bunch of drills. We're trying to figure out why they're doing it, how we can incorporate that into our broadcast, what we want to ask the coach, uh, what we're going to ask the player, whether it's that afternoon, if we're getting sound for an upcoming game or later that, that week when we're doing a game and we're talking to a guy like Parisi about something they worked on in the power play and maybe some adjustment they've made, you're trying to always take the fan places they can't be. And by being at practice, you know, I'd tell young people, you're able to get certain things that the average person can't get. And if you can bring that out on a broadcast, then you've really accomplished something. And that's really why you put the time in. The other factor is you want to have the respect of the players and the coaches. And you're not going to get that by just showing up every night for a game. You're going to get that by being there every single day and putting the time in and, and really getting to know what their craft is because they're elite, they're professionals, and they're spectacular. And so you want to kind of be able to get to know them and get to know what makes them tick because that, that too can make the broadcast that much better when you get to the games. And nowadays for folks, um, the work ethic has to be there, and there's plenty of places to kind of learn your craft. With the, the podcasts and the computers now, you can go out and you can do a high school game or interview a high school player or coach anytime you want. And they're going to be available for you. And you can work on your craft by the time you get out of college. You've got that valuable experience under your belt. Well, I want to get to that question last about some advice for younger guys. But And we'll, we'll, we'll dig deeper into that. But just take this one step further in your in the, in the going to practice part of it. I, what, what, I, what I would see, and, and comment on this, what I would see is, you would see, okay, on, on Wednesday we went to practice and they were super light. There was just, just helmets and gloves and they were working on power play and they weren't no bag skate. They weren't doing any conditioning or whatever. And now you're going to see, you know, because they're probably coming off a, a two and a back-to-back or something like that. And now you can take that because you've seen it with your own eyes as to what the, the, the pace of practice was in, on a certain day into your broadcast on Thursday night or Friday when they actually suit up. Yeah, that's the fun stuff, right? I mean, when you can when you can find something along the way that they've been working on, and then you see the practice and the adjustment play out uh, during the game, that's that's TV gold for all of us. We're looking for that, and you know, I I, I think watching Lapanta and West Walls and Ryan Carter and Mike Greenley and all of us that kind of are there on a daily basis uh, pick up on some of these nuances. It's the best part of the job, you know. And then you 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 see this team on the road the travel and the time commitment and how they find energy and what they do subtly behind the scenes. These are the kind of things you want to bring out in the broadcast. And that's the advantage you have of being there with the team on a daily basis is you wouldn't get that unless you were there up in Calgary at the Saddledome day before the game, 
watching them work on the penalty kill, watching them work on line rushes, seeing what the goaltenders are doing with Bob Mason, who's a phenomenal goalie coach. All these things play a role come game time, and you have a notebook full of things that a lot of times you only use 5% of, maybe 10 on the right. high side. And then you just kind of file the rest away and hope for another night where it comes down. But uh, it, it's the best part of the gig. You didn't get into this business uh, the old-fashioned way. We've talked a couple times. There's a young kid out there or there's a college student who might be listening to this. What's a little bit, a nugget of advice you could give them uh, to, to getting into the industry? Number one thing, without a doubt, in my mind, is to get the experience. I, I think if I look back at doing those high school games with LaPanta in the early 90s, um, doing it for free but getting the experience, that was the foundation to where I am now. That allowed me the success if I've had any since. And <laughs> nowadays, as I mentioned, you know, with the podcasts, the webcasts, with even Snapchat and all the video things you can do um, with your phone, that is the, the foundation these kids need to remember is you can go to a sporting event anytime, any place, and you can put yourself on, you can interview a player, you can interview a coach. Most of the folks out there, if you set it up in the front end, will let you do that. Heck, you can just go to a high school game with your buddy and call the game and record it and come back and listen to it and be a better broadcaster the next time you do it. To me, experience is gold. When you get to high school, get involved in journalism. When you get to college, I look at St. Cloud State and what they have for a TV station up there that covers the Huskies. Husky TV is phenomenal. That's just one example yeah. at this level of a, a place that just churns out people in our business that are so ready to go by the time they get out of college. That's what you have to do. You have to find a way to get the experience. Well, it's been an awesome experience. We got this done in 90 minutes, and we've started from the backyard baseball games and got all the way to you asking great questions to pro athletes. It's been a blast, Gorgie. I've enjoyed it, Tony. A little stroll down memory lane with some of those great stories. And I'm going to have to mention it to Mike Luckcraft that he'll want to listen for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> yeah, with Pumpus Tires, what a great player he was. But, uh, yeah, he did embarrass himself uh, in front of his mother on that phone. And that'll, uh, that'll be a, a legendary prank that'll uh, go on forever. It will. It will live on forever. And I uh, can't wait to meet you in person someday. It's, a, it's been a thrill and an honor to have you on our Lots of Matzo Pizza podcast today. My pleasure. Kevin Gorg from FSN Sports. It's been an awesome podcast. Thanks for tuning in today.